This is the Fixed Plasm podcast, dissecting fiction for role-playing inspiration. And I'm Ralph. This is the second episode of three concerning Clive Barker's Magicka. So, as I did last episode, I'm going to talk about uh, the synopsis, which covers chapters 18 through 42, I believe, about 500 pages in my in my copy of the Magicka. And then I'm going to talk about some themes, and then finally I'm going to talk about role-playing again. So without further ado, here's the synopsis. We pick up after Pi and Gentle have travelled from the Fifth Dominion into the Fourth, leaving Judith behind. Gentle and Pi have arrived in the Fourth Dominion near the city of Batushka. Immediately they're thrown into a hostile situation, learning that the Autarch's forces have forbidden unsanctioned transit between the Fifth and other dimensions. Other Dominions, sorry. They encounter the maestro Tikror, who again seems to know something of Gentle that he himself is unaware of. They face off against a, mon- a monster called a, I'm trying to pronounce this correctly, Nullianak, a creature with a head formed of two praying hands which emit crackling energy, but Gentle has powers of his own and kills the creature with a pneuma, which is something that turns his exhaled breath into a missile. And later he uses this pneuma to wreak havoc and destruction left and right, using it to slay foes and blast his way through obstacles. Gentle and Pine make their way along the road towards the Jokalelau mountain range in Glacier, making friends along the way then, as is often the case, inadvertently putting them in harm's way by drawing the attention of the Autarch's forces, and people are put to the sword and Gentle feels suitably responsible. They're walking in the footsteps of the Divine, of the divine. Hapax Mendius the Unbeheld, who now dwells in the First Dominion. At the mountain range, they find women frozen in place. We learn that, along the way, he destroyed other female-centric cults and religions, as well as leaving his agents to spy on and deal with anyone who comes looking for the goddesses. Water, and by extension ice, is a central theme of the Divine Female, and after a, after a series of dangerous encounters, Gentle and Pi break, break through the glacier, finding a passing place and emerging in the Third Dominion. Now, Pi recommends they seek out his friend Skopik, who they learn is being held at the prison at the cradle, a lake which is sometimes solid and sometimes fluid. And as a consequence, Gentle takes a dip in the lake, encounters the deities within the waters, and survives contrary to expectations. Gentle and Pi marry in the prison, the head of the prison is overthrown, and the two flee with Skopik's daughter Hazar to the Second Dominion and the magnificent city of Zodorex, seat of the Autarch. Now, meanwhile, Judith is making good on her vow to get to the other Dominions, for which she first enlists Esterbrook's help, then, when they meet in the family mansion, Oscar Godolphin and Dowd. Esterbrook is Godolphin's elder brother, but gave up the family name and the estate went to him, and the membership of the Tabula Rasa went to Godolphin. Estabrook is taken out of the picture by his brother, who apparently kills him off-camera, although we later learn this isn't the case. From then, Judith forms a relationship with Oscar, which seems like a, a genuine partnership rather than a cynical means to an end, and Oscar confesses his involvement with the Tabula Rasa, his magical trappings, and uh, that he's able to take Judith where she wants to go, to the other dominions. Now, Judith is still intent on getting to the woman in the tower, and contrives to break in. Excusing her from Godolphin's company, she contrives to visit the tower, and there she encounters a woman named Clara Leash, a former member of the Tabula Rasa, who has very specific views on the gender struggle. 
she is quoted as saying, men aren't a different sex, they're a different species. Uh, now, Judith is onto something, and she has this new ally in Clara, but there's a fly in the ointment, which is Dowd, who is more psychopathic than ever. He stops Judith's break-in and kills Clara, totally unmaking her with one of the mites that he used to kill Chant, before taking Judith back to Oscar. In that unmaking, he also apparently destroys the blue eye, the artefact that seems to have given Judith her visions. He incarcerates Judith back at the estate, but once Oscar learns of this, Oscar frees her. And apparently he's still on her side, and he agrees to transport her to the other Dominion. They participate in the ritual to do so, but at the last minute, Dowd breaks into the magic circle and displaces Oscar, and it's Dowd who winds up with Judith in the second Dominion, in Yozodorex at the house of Oscar's contact, Peckable, where they also meet his daughter, Hoi Polloi. Now, from here, we get a third and fourth point of view in the narrative, the Autark and his queen, Quasar. The Autark is a sort of two-dimensional arch-villain, um, paranoid and drug-addicted to a drug called Cruci. I think I pronounced that right. And Quasar is the more interesting and sympathetic character. She's a believer in Christ, something that's at odds with her public persona, which is apparently cruel and delights in public executions. Now, Quasar and Gentle intersect briefly, as, as we've said, Gentle has just arrived in Yuzodorex as well with Pi, and he sees her when she is out and about, and he instantly recognises her as Judith, which is impossible, of course. At the same time, though, Quasar has a revelation, believing she has witnessed Christos in the flesh, which further affirms her devotion. Now, the city is in uproar, and the, the riots are just beginning as everyone converges on a single point in, this, in, the, in the city, which is likened to a god, and the inhabitants of which are showing their devotion by living on its body. Gentle and Pai and Hazar arrive at their destination, which is the Yehotemic Kesperet, which is a word for district, and they are not welcomed with open arms from the rest of Pai's tribe. Instead, Pai's taken away for trial. Gentle and Hazar are left to explore the city as the riots intensify, and this ends in tragedy as Hazar is abducted and killed by another Nalianak. Gentle unleashes a terrible revenge as a result, destroying a portion of Licorice Street. Now, Pai is accused of deserting their tribe, and, and since the penalty may be death, they propose the punishment as him being as it being tasked with assassinating the Autark, which may well be a suicide mission anyway. But separate from Pai, and now bereft of Hazar, Gentle also joins the Yotemic Offensive on the Autark's palace, having nothing else to do. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the city, Judith dreams herself into the palace and dis discovers her double as Quasar, and the latter can sense Judith's presence in her astral form and takes her for an angel or an angel or an agent of the Christ. Although, interestingly, the presence that she feels is suddenly disrupted by the appearance of one of her attendants, and Quasar assumes that it's his masculinity which is upsetting the alignment of feminine and spiritual energies. So again, we have this idea that men and women are different spiritual beings and they exist in different divine spaces. While all this has been happening, and it's getting complicated, Judith and Dowd and Quasar converge on an old theatre. 
Quasar anticipates that she's coming to meet Christ, but instead she finds a pretender who blinds her, and Judith and Dowd find her shortly afterwards. Dowd briefly masquerades as the Messiah that Quasar is, is seeking, although that disguise doesn't last very long. Judith and Dowd then have a heart-to-heart, where Dowd opines that lovers are the most selfishly destructive force in reality, not really caring that they bring down cities and nations in the pursuit of their own entanglements. Dowd is then brought down low by Quasar, who, despite losing her sight, she has the power of a goddess within her, and she transforms into a divine being and effectively drops Dowd down a well. And we think that's the end of him. Quasar then guides Judith to the pivot, which is the succulent rock at the heart of all creation, this enormous phallic symbol uh, that uh, supposedly Hapax Mendes, the unbeheld god, placed at the centre of all creation. The secret about this rock is it actually contains a goddess, which is one of the ultimate jokes that this ridiculous phallic symbol actually contains one of the trinity of the female goddesses of the Imagica. We also understand that the pivot apparently hears every prayer through the dominions and exists chiefly to alert Hapax Mendius of prayers to gods other than himself. So whilst all that's going on elsewhere, the assault on the palace is coming to a climax and Gentle comes face to face with the Autarch, who is his spitting image. And the reason for this is revealed. Uh, it was two centuries ago, a magical ritual conducted to duplicate Quasar as Judith, also duplicated Gentle by accident. And more to the point, the duplicate contains the very worst parts of him as a wanton drunkard. Um, Gentle's past life as Sartori from two centuries ago is finally explained. Uh, and going forward, though, Gentle retains his name and the Autarch becomes identified as Sartori, who is this dark shadow of Gentle. Gentle has come face to face with his doppelganger, but of course we still have Pi who's on this mission to assassinate the Autarch. So Gentle and Pi are briefly reunited and pursue Sartori, now he's revealed. But Sartori then ends the pursuit and casts his own killing spell at the Mystiff, uh, which is a kind of magic missile drawn from his eye. Uh, still very visceral, uh, so it's not breath, but it still has the same kind of feel as Gentle's Pneuma. And Pi lies dying, and Sartori escapes into the palace, and he then resolves to return to the Fifth Dominion and conquer it and found a new Yuzodorex, but not before he seduces Judith, who is lying in Quasar's bed, unaware that Gentle has a double. So we've got this kind of peculiar back and forth with different cases of mistaken identity and several different uh, narratives going on at the same time. Pi's been mortally injured and Gentle carries them to the Eurasia which is the border at the edge of the First Dominion where the religious cult of the Dirthas has made camp. Now the Dirthas revere the many aspects of the goddess so we come back to this idea about female versus male gods. And their camp contains several statues to female deity figures. Here both uh, Gentle and Pi are tended to by medics, but Pi's wounds are really more than it can bear, and it begs Gentle to let it go, to uh, walk out into the Eurasia and into the First Dominion, uh, essentially to die and enter heaven. And then there's this rather horrible twist, which is uh, 
after this happens, a storm comes out of the first, chasing the howling soul of Mistith, who, is not, who has not found peace, but is instead utterly tormented. And we finally learn that there is the potential to reconcile the Dominions, and that the Maestro Sartori has that power, and has attempted it once before, but failed. Now, with this knowledge, and seeing this terror coming out of the First Dominion, Gentle resolves to attempt the reconciliation a second time, in some ways feeling that that's the only thing he has any purpose for anymore. Not everyone shares this view, and Gentle is advised by the Dirthers in an echo of his lover's demand uh, early on when we first introduced for him to slit his own throat, that it's his blood the land wants as a sacrifice. Parting company with the camp, he's reunited with Judith and Quasar at the pivot, which shatters, killing Quasar. And finally, Judith and Gentle return to Earth, the Fifth Dominion, and to London. There's a lot to unpack there. So we've effectively got a um, a sort of magical road trip where the different characters find lots of interesting sights to look at in the, in the other Dominions. Um, of the themes which I'd like to talk about now I'm going to start by talking about a concept called portal fantasy so here's the idea um, the point at which Pi and Gentle travel out of the fifth dominion in Magicka sort of changes from being a sort of primary world low or urban fantasy per the definition discussed in the last episode into a portal fantasy so what's a portal fantasy? The Science Fiction Encyclopedia, which is now available in online form, although uh, this definition all came out, also came out of my Fantasy Encyclopedia Dead Tree version, has a general page on portals, which I'll link in the show notes. It doesn't really talk about portal fantasies as a subgenre, but other sources do actually refer to that. Um, one of those is a TV Tropes page, and the other is the um, Barnes & Noble SF blog. So first, from John Clute's entry in the SF Encyclopedia, we get this comment on portals as a definition. Quote, Very few fantasy texts lack them. They may be physical, doors, gates, tunnels, pictures, movie screens, mirrors, labyrinths, or metaphorical. They may exist whenever a crosshatch which mingles worlds, or a threshold which demarcates them, is sufficiently focused to be detected, perhaps only by talents, or less commonly, they may be themselves transportable in the forms of amulets or rings or books. More often than not, a little-big relationship obtains between the outside and the inside of a portal. They may be located anywhere, from a nook or a wardrobe or a cranny to an edifice or a city, at whose heart may hum a thousand intersections. They may be signals of almost any significant transit point in the typical genre fantasy, transitions between this world and another world, or afterlife venue, or Arabian nightmare, from one other world to another, from our time via time slip or time travel to another time, from this world to fairy, from one level of reality to another, from life into death, from prior state of growth, uh, a rite of passage, into empowered adulthood, from a prior state of being via metamorphosis into something rich and strange, from amnesia through recognition into healing, whenever that central fantasy movement is dramatised or put in ritual form. That's taking a very broad definition of portals. Okay, and we need to narrow it down to get to the definition of portal fantasy. 
Now the TV Tropes page entitled Trapped in Another World, aka Portal Fantasy, says this, quote, a standard plot stroke myth arc for speculative fiction. The ordinary high school student, frequently his friends and sometimes his enemies, are all transported, often summoned, to another world. Distant planet, a magical land, alternate universe, the past, the future, where they find they have an important role to play in events of significance, those are capitalised, that are occurring at the same time as, or sometimes because of, their arrival. Usually, there is no hope of their finding a means to return home until after the great threat facing them has been defeated. Occasionally, they will then question if they even want to leave, especially when there is an ongoing fantastic romance. Finally, the Barnes & Noble SF blog describes it as a cornerstone of the genre, and, and I think it is because they give some very credible examples. There are eight examples, in fact, three of which are C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, Lev Grossman's The Magicians, and Neil Gaiman's Coraline. And that's kind of interesting because it shows a variation in scale from a, a sort of fully realised other fantasy world, that's Narnia or Fillory, to just a, a small localised pocket dimension, um, you know, mirror world, shadow world, etc., which Coraline is an example. So I want to discuss the principles common elements and variations of this subgenre. The first is that the world on the other side is self-contained. It's not reliant on traffic from the other side. These are whole self-sustaining worlds with their own cultures, myths, governments, identities. In fact, the majority of the population may not be aware of portals or be aware of them, but never leave their own home. Now, um, I should mention, I'm excluding science fiction in general. Uh, for example, a space opera with Stargates effectively does satisfy this condition, uh, and it can join two non-contiguous worlds together by crossing vast distances. But usually um, that genre assumes that the worlds are part of a, a, continuum, a continuum of space communities, even if they are individually self-contained. So the second point, the world may or may not be defined in contrast to the primary world. Uh, what do I mean by that? Um, Narnia is more or less independent from the real world. The world of Coraline's button-eyed other mother mimics and distorts her own world, so it's a kind of mirror or shadow. And there are other examples, could be uh, past or future or alternate histories. Uh, for example, the TV series Sliders or Ian MacDonald's Evanus series. Third point, uh, portals could be permanent, predictable, transient, unstable. Passing through could be voluntary or not, and they can also be one-way passages, and you can't get back, or they can be two-way. Fourth point, some fictions have a sort of magical underground or secret channels um, that exist in its own space, like a sort of hyperspace. Um, there's the Netherlands and the Magicians, which connects all the worlds together. There's um, the Grand Staircase in the role-playing game Lords of Gosmer and Shadow, which is an Amber Dyson's clone. Um, some have a hub uh, that sees a lot of traffic. So think of the cities of Everway uh, in Everway and Sigil in Planescape. Or um, the Factory in Monsters, Inc., although that's not really used for um, 
as a stepping point for places in the real world to get to other places in the real world. But Monster Sync Factory does connect to a lot of places in the real world. Other places might just have no hub at all, and they're just like daisy chain realities together, um, like sliders, for example. Next point, about travellers. So a lot of the time, a large uh, proportion of um, people in the wider cosmos are actually aware that there are portals and other worlds. And there's often this whole subculture of travellers who move between them. They know each other. Um, they might have certain rules that they have to abide by. That They could have formed a guild or guilds. They could even be policing the traffic and making sure that, for example, some worlds don't leak into the others. Um, an example, Ian McDonald's Evanus series has an organisation that controls access to alternative Earths, and it's actively quarantined one Earth because the consequences of the things in that Earth getting to the others are truly frightening. Um, now, the point of view character, as a traveller, has an objective view of the world that's going to differ from the natives. Next point, um, these worlds aren't constrained by geography. Uh, it's which is kind of interesting and useful. Um, you can link wildly different spaces together. You can find the entrance to uh, the entrance to Narnia in a wardrobe, for example, or a painting. Um, so you can have two totally non-contiguous spaces, and you don't need to obey any of the constraints of time and space. Moving on from that, sometimes you're not actually constrained by physics or chemistry or biology. So yeah, laws of physics change. Um, things work in some worlds and they don't work in others. Um, and on that note, sometimes things taken through from one reality and put in another react unexpectedly. Sometimes there are rules about which doors you can pass through. Those might be mediated by keys or guardians. The last point I want to make is about identity. So let's say you've got characters from a primary world and you connect it to a secondary world with its own communities and traditions which exist independently to our own. There are opportunities, therefore, for people to leave one existence and start up in a completely different world with a completely different identity. Sometimes this is actually forced on characters when they're trapped somewhere in time and space. Other times it might be done by choice. Now, that's a, that's a, a reasonable list, but all it's really describing is a container for an adventure. You could build whole loads of uh, the same kind of constraints to portals and other worlds within... An archipelago setting, for example, where you have self-contained islands and you control how people get to those. That wouldn't be a portal fantasy, but it would still serve the same function. Um, and so one of the things that you can do if you want to separate these worlds out and control traffic backwards and forwards, one, you can use it to cut the pieces off from the rest of the map. Um, and you make leaving the other world part of a condition of the plot, and a condition of the quest maybe, you could inject local conditions uh, into the island or the world or wherever they're exploring. For example, let's say they're trapped in a nightmare world with survival horror elements uh, where they're constantly placed under threat. Um, that threat goes away as soon as they manage to escape and go outside that world. You can also explore things like variation in function and abilities between locations. Uh, uh, an obvious example is um, where you've got a range of tech levels and you say magic works better on one side of the portal where it's low tech and technology works better on the other side where it's high tech. Uh, and I think the Torg RPG does exactly this. It's uh, some 
weapons just don't work when you go to a, a, the fantasy setting, I think. Now, you've also got a potential hook of travelling between worlds because there's a resource on the other side. Uh, and This is actually the premise of the game Day Trippers by Todd Foley. That game features a future ruled by corporations, so it's science fictional rather than fantasy. But it still has the same kinds of principles, and you, and you incentivize quests to different worlds, um, via, which are reached by via slip ships. And these journeys are called slips. And there are a number of different ones that, that are defined. Um, Cartesian slips, which I, uh, are, happen just in space um, are to known and unknown planets then there are temporal slips which go which are for time travel there are paraterran slips that's a great word uh, for traveling to alternate earths subjective slips for dream worlds and compound slips for the multiversal chaos so the aim overall is exploration conquest and resource gathering for fun and profit so related to that then you have the why people are traveling is there an overarching organisation in your world that invites or forces people to travel to these other worlds? Is this organisation fully visible or is it secret? And how do you incentivize travel? Do you forbid certain types of travel? Do you block off certain places? Do characters travel because they want to get to something or because they're running from something? In Coraline, our hero goes into the shadow world to find a, a better version of her normal family. And some characters pass through portals by accident, others are running away from something and take the open door as an opportunity. Going back to the last episode, you can think about the human entanglements across world and having things unresolved on the other side pulling you back are, are really strong motivators to keeping characters having one foot on either side of the portal. So the last theme and plot device I want to talk about are doppelgangers. Not only can you have people living different lives in multiple worlds, you can also have alternative versions of characters living the same life in alternative worlds. Now think back to the first page of Magica where it talks about a cast of thousands, some of whom are shadows of the central three characters, and then of course Gentle and Judith have their doppelgangers in Sartori and Quasar. And these don't have to be identical twins. They could just be aspects of the same person. So uh, in Moorcock's fiction, some characters meet their equivalent aspect quite regularly. The Eternal Champion, for example. Moorcock also has a thing going on with characters with the initials JC. So that's uh, Jarek Cornelian, Lord Jagged of Canaria, Jerry R. Uh, Jerry R. Connell. Uh, and that implies that there's some kind of repeating pattern or um, shadow or aspect of one central character and of course jerry cornelius himself um goes through a, a variety of transformations in what appear to be different worlds alongside that he has traveler companions uh, sister catherine cornelius uh, una person and there's Ms. brunner as well amongst other people grant morrison's zenith features multiple alternate earths making up the omnihedron a sort of multiversal crystal lattice where Earths are connected by Einstein-Rosen bridges, and Zenith meets his counterpart from another alternative, who's called Vertex. And they seem to have the same power, very similar costume, which is a quite a clever bit of design, uh, but they have a vastly different personality. Zenith is a, is a hedonist, a drunkard, not much of a nice person. Um, Vertex, on the other hand, is self-sacrificing um, and teetotal. Seems to be a nice guy. 
So you've got doubles in alternate Earths, or even just clones, as in a Magicka. What can you do with them? First thing that springs to my mind is you could have them do things which land the primary PC in trouble. Now, Gentle and Judith's memories are already unreliable, so they don't really know what they themselves have done. But you could have characters arriving in the alternative world with a reputation that precedes them, uh, and that kicks off all kinds of antagonistic encounters. The second thing you could do, which could be interesting, is you connect these two alternative characters, um, who are essentially the same character, in dreams and visions, and you allow one player to play out multiple lives in different worlds. I think this is partly the idea that the Amazing Engine role-playing system had, where you have one universal avatar which can appear across a number of genres, although probably not in the same campaign. But I think you could do all kinds of leaping around with past lives, um, alternate existences, and so on. Some story games do this kind of thing already, where the player adopts a sort of archetype which is played out through different characters. I know Liz's Rise and Fall does this, I suspect that Microscope or Kingdom may do something similar. Um, in this case, I'm talking about something that's to limit the ideas to something fairly trad, which is a first-person point-of-view adventures. But in any case, you could still use this technique to pass knowledge between worlds and characters. You could also have characters in the past leave things for future characters to find. You could have powers gained in one world being awakened in other worlds could be quite interesting. Of course, the, the third thing you could do is um, impersonate each other. We've already got a problem where uh, of mistaken identity where Judith mistakes Sartori for Gentle, and uh, in turn Gentle has assumed that Quasar is actually Judith, even though that's impossible. Here's an example of something really interesting you can do with duplicates or alternate selves. Aethico in, I think it was around 1999, released a role-playing game called Continuum, and there's a companion game called Narcissist. They're both time travel games, and they cover the competing philosophies of two time-traveling factions. With time travel, you can meet your other self, and in fact, they have uh, in-canon rules for this about what you should do if you meet somebody who is you from your personal future, your yet. In Continuum, you have to obey your other self, if it's older than you, because they're in your yet. And continuum stick is that the part of the future is predetermined and therefore your personal yet is also predetermined, so you have to obey your older self. In Narcissist, it's the other way around. You're advised to never trust your future self because your future self might have changed your mind or you could be a plant, you could have been corrupted by the other side, which is nicely paranoid. Now, um, the Continuum exists to avoid time travellers and time itself becoming fragmented or fragged because they insist that there is this one future everything is converging on, and they must make sure that that happens. But on the other side, these narcissists, which is a, it's actually a pejorative term uh, used to describe these characters, they actually call themselves crashers. They say that there are multiple parallel Earths, and that's, uh, that, that's actually the way they travel in time. They create these crash points... Uh, between paraverses and then hop between them. And because the paraverses timelines run in different directions and at different rates, crashes can like hop onto different realities, like a whole bunch of different escalators running at different rates to get to any point where they want to be in time, which is just a brilliant idea, mind-blowing. But then 
these crashes don't just have future versions of themselves who they, they are taught to automatically distrust. They also have alternative versions of themselves in the other Earths. And it's implied that they have this really mercenary attitude to these alternate versions of themselves. They'll basically say, think nothing of uh, murdering them and inserting themselves into their doubles' lives to take all their stuff when it suits them. This is such a genius idea. Uh, I think it's a crying shame that Narcissist was never, ever published. I think they got up to about point, version 0.7, um, which may be floating around the Wayback Machine somewhere, although I've not seen it for some time. Okay, that's an awful lot to think about with themes. I'm going to finish off by talking about the role-playing bit. There are a few ready-made RPGs to get your portal fantasy on. First, I'm going to talk about um, Planescape and Portal Rats. Now, I never got into Planescape, or indeed any kind of AD&D, despite an awful lot of great stuff happening with the uh, second edition settings. I have recently played Portal Rats, which calls itself High Misadventure on the Infinite Planes. It says that Portal Rats adds rules to emulate games of adventure set in, a, in the grand multiverse of planes created for the original role-playing game, particularly the second edition's line of multiplanar adventure. It supports tales of exploration, adventure, and intrigue while traversing the infinite multiverse of inner, outer, prime, and transitory planes. Wink. It's basically the black hack with custom classes and backgrounds, and it's a really nice simple system, as you'd expect. Um, up front you have a heavy chunk of character generation covering planes of origin later there's a, a little adventure C generator on two pages which is functional but it's still a bit limited in scope and there's the mention of portal keys in about half a page and that's pretty much what you get in terms of describing what these characters are doing in other worlds and from reading the text and from the game I played which included both the authors it's clear that this is a game designed to speak to fans of the original Planescape setting. And I'm not familiar with that canon. And I think if you've spent the 90s romping around Sigil and the surrounding planes, then this game is going to fly for you. For me, I certainly to run it, I'd like the system to do a little bit more heavy lifting. Now, um, I do have other resources, uh, certainly in the OSR vein. Uh, for example, Silent Legions, which I mentioned last episode, there are plenty of tables in that to help with world building. Now, talking about tables, though, um, going back to Todd Foley's Day Trippers, the GM guide includes a whole bunch of generators. Um, the layout, by the way, of Day Trippers is a lot more like uh, some of the more recent Traveller books, and the subsystems also give me that sort of classic Traveller vibe. The world generation is pretty specific to Day Trippers, but there's a lot for inspiration. Um, you can generate the, the stars, the planets, the atmosphere, water content, biosphere, surrounding terrain, weather, biodiversity. So there's loads of fuel for ideas there. Another game which I mentioned earlier is Lords of Gossamer and Shadow. And this is a big book and very wordy. It has some pretty good unique ideas for a multiverse connected by the Grand Stair, which leads to these many doors of different worlds. And there are also notes on keys with a capital K to doors, some stuff about establishing domains and so on. But unless you really want to play the next iteration of Amber Diceless, I don't see a lot of support for creating those worlds. 
Although, to be honest, I've been totally put off reading the PDF. It's a, it's a common, combination of fonts, font size, the purple margins, narrow line spacing, narrow column spacing, no white space. Really tiresome to read. Sorry, guys. It's a bit of a shame because it's obviously a labour of love and it rightly carries on the tradition started by Amber Diceless, which was way ahead of its time back in 1991. Um, and it, that, that in itself was coming uh, at the indie space from a completely different direction and talking about really innovative ways of adjudicating conflict. So now I want to talk about the main item, which is Everway. And I'm wondering, could there be a more perfect fit for a Magicka? For this reason, uh, Everway is a, a game heavy on symbolism. It makes a lot of use of artwork. It has its own version of a tarot deck for resolution, which is with a, a, a meta plot focused on gates and realms and with the fortune deck resonating all the way from the human scale up to the cosmic scale. Uh, and, and that was the thing that really blew me away. There's a lot to recommend it, like uh, it's got a really simple four stat sim system, which uh, isn't unique. I, I first became the fan of that concept with Ghostbusters. Um, it's got a really clever way of handling powers. So you pay for them on the basis if they were frequent, major or versatile. Um, it's got this great idea for Virtue, Fault and Fate. So you have a three card reading that ties your character into the fortune deck. And if a card is drawn in play, you can immediately apply that lever to the character because the scene has suddenly become relevant to them. And that's a really clever way of tying characters, even characters who are absent from that scene, into the resonant themes of the game. The art's awesome. Uh, of course, anyone can get a bunch of art cards and then use them in a game. And I have a bunch of Catherine Jeffrey Jones art cards, amongst others. And I've used Magic the Gathering commons for that purpose as well. But the really great thing that Everway did with its art cards is on the backs of the cards, they had all these guiding questions to help the GM and players think about what they represent and then incorporate them into the game at the table. And I stress at the table. So think about the time that this, it was an era when gaming was meta plot and canon heavy, but here was a functional game with this tool for generating ideas on the fly. The, resolu the resolution system was clever and it inspired, if not became the cornerstone of some of the theories espoused by the Forge and Ron Edwards, the idea that you could resolve a conflict through karma, drama or fortune. So that's uh, karma, numerical comparison, drama, what makes sense dramatically, or fortune, which is randomization. Uh, the thing that really makes Everway special, though, is the realms. Um, so first off, we said the, the, the fortune deck is this ubiquitous artifact throughout the multiverse. It's not just an on-table thing for the game group to interact with. It actually represents something that exists throughout the throughout the fantasy worlds. Now, one of the cards, the, the 36th card, was, re was replaced by the usurper. And in each realm, the usurper is replaced by a different unique card that represents the dramatic poles of the realm. Uh, using dramatic poles in a pre-drama system sense, I guess, but hey. Um, so you have this subtly changing yet ever-present reminder of the cosmic structure in the thing that you've got in your hands on the table. Then then you also have a, a Virtue, Fault and Fate, a three-card reading for each realm. So you use the Fortune deck like a tarot deck as inspiration for the conflicts and things running through that realm. So this is a, a different kind of set of random tools for low prep realm generation. It feels a lot more fitting for the general tone of reality hopping in a Magicka. 
than than maybe a, an OSR set of random tables, although those are perfectly functional and they definitely have their place. Um, it's not a perfect system, I'd say. Um, magic leaves something to be designed, in my view. The idea that you create paths of magic is solid, but there's not really a lot of guidance on how to design them yourself. Now, um, Everway was a commercial flop, and that's how I got my copy in a remainder bookshop. I think around um, 2000, Gaslight Press acquired the rights from Wizards of the Coast, but the second edition never emerged. And part of that poor success was probably trying to cash in on the frenzy for collectible card games. Uh, CCGs work because it creates an economy between the players who will want to purchase cards which are in random boosters and then trade them. But there's for an RPG, the same, that economy doesn't exist. So it made no sense for Everway to then market extra vision cards in boosters. Why would you do that? Traditionally, it's the GM who owns the game, so your market for cards may be a fifth of that for collectible card games, at best. Not to mention the annoyance of getting random boosters anyway. You don't want that in a role-playing supplement. You wouldn't want ran you wouldn't want to just pick a book off the shelf and have a random scattering of chapters in your book. You'd want to know what you're paying for. I think though, going forward, you can fix all of that. You can make your own vision cards, you can get plenty of fancy trade art cards. But it's the uniqueness of the fortune deck that's going to make making a retro clone difficult. Now, if Everware had taken off, I wonder if we would have seen themed fortune decks. Um, there is an Everway community that's been that's used Everway to play a lot of different things, including Amber. There's an Amber Way, I think it's called. So, what if somebody were to make a, a very sensible combination of Amber and Everway with a custom fortune deck that was themed like Amber's Trumps. That would rock. Anyway, that success never happened, so that's just an idea. Um, and it's got to be expensive making your own run of cards, which are obviously going to have a, a limited appeal, a limited appeal for what's going to essentially be um, each of those separate worlds is going to be a bit niche. Unfortunately, the fortune deck is really specific, so it's not. It's also not straightforward just to take a commercial tarot deck and just use that. So if you want to make a sort of retro clone of Everway, and you want to keep the general format and aesthetic, you have a choice. Either you make exact copies of the original cards, or you repurpose other cards and, if needed, redesign the card system. And that is what I have done. So dig this, I discovered the Petit Lenormand, pronounced that right. Um, I discovered the Petit Lenormand and uh, decided to use those as a fortune deck. Um, and it was very useful. They, they fall into a 36 card deck, uh, which is exactly the same number of cards in the fortune deck. It's a bit like them being 36 cards and them all being major arcana. Although the interpretation of each card is more literal and what you do is you draw them in pairs and one of the cards is the subject that you're talking about and the other is a modifier. So, but, but they have some nice aspects that could be leveraged for game design. Um, not only do you have them uh, as these major arcana types, they also, they're also organized around playing card suits and you can use the numbers six through to the ace. So you've got a, you've got both a sort of um, four suits that you could use and you've got some numbers you can play around with. 
the other interesting thing, and I think this is some some people do this in the DIY Le Monde community, is um, you can DIY your own cards by getting just commercial playing, playing cards and then sticking whatever graphics you want to do onto those cards. And you've just got uh, you've got a ready-made personalized deck. My retro clone I've called Grand Tableau, um, which links directly to uh, the Lunamond card spread, a 36 card spread, which represents a complete overview of reality. It suits the concept of multiple realms or worlds, this being having a 36 card spread re representing the entire multiverse, I think. Um, and in the game world, I've made the Grand Tableau. It's, it's kind of underlying pattern to multiple worlds, like uh, like the Grand Stair in, in um, uh, Lords of Gossamer and Shadow, or like Zenith on the Hadron. But being cards, you can represent it in two dimensions. Um, rather than discrete worlds, each card represents a slight reconfiguration of one world, so it's more like paraverses in Narcissus than Realms in Everway. However, you can have pocket domains which can only be accessed by connecting with a specific alternate reality. Now, in the Lenormand deck, uh, as I mentioned before, cards are paired together to get meaning, with one being the subject, the other being the modifier. And in normal actions, um, the card draws end up getting paired with the attributes being used. So there are four attributes, um, which are Air, Earth, Fire and Water, tied to the four card suits. Um, hearts being Water, Diamonds being Air, Clubs being Earth and spades being, oh sorry, hearts being fire, my mistake, spades being air. And the idea is that you can have, um, you if you have colour match suits, they're sympathetic, um, uh, mismatch suits are antagonistic. I redesigned the cards with dual meanings, like the original fortune deck, but there's no need to have them inverted, which is one thing that you, you had uh, some inverted cards with different meanings for the fortune deck. Um, Lenormand cards actually don't get inverted in use. It's what matters is the context of the neighbouring cards that affects the reading. Uh, mostly what I'm aiming for at the end effect is a sort of like Archipelago or Idris B using their fortune deck, which is a four state draw outcome. Um, so you've got the outcome of yes and, yes but, no but and no and. And when it comes to magic, uh, there are three tiers of reality represented by the cards. So the principles of the four aces, the courts are all the court cards, and then the commoners are cards six through ten. Now our characters who are all magicians automatically get access to the commoners equal to their level in certain attributes. So if you've got a six in air or spades, um, they, you automatically have access to the six of spades, the tower. And the intent is for players to make their own cards. So you, you take an ordinary claim card and stick a graphic on the card, and that becomes the on-table artifact. And the player has that extra card in front of them that represents a power that they have. And more to the point, that the player is then free and encouraged to rename that card to suit their character's magic. So the player with the tower might call it Roxburgh Tower if, if it's after a specific place. Uh, they might call it Mockingbird if it's after a god that resides in a tower. They might call it the Phallus of Osiris if they're feeling fruity. Um, now the other cards are available to purchase with character points just as in Everway you can buy powers at certain levels. Court cards cost two points. Aces cost three points. Other commoners cost one point. Um, in Everway, of course, you, you have this um, frequent major and versatile um, language so the idea is the court cards uh, might be two of those frequent and versatile frequent and major etc and aces are frequent major and versatile they're kind of you know sledgehammer a sledgehammer to crack a nut effectively 
I wanted to also do something with magical dueling and spell casting, uh, and I've experimented with a couple of different dueling mechanisms, which I won't go into because they're a bit unfinished. What I'd really like to do, though, is to work in the grand tableau itself on the table. So you imagine a an eight by five grid of cards with a few spaces in there, those um, becoming a kind of labyrinth that warring magicians enter from different ends as they move through the realities to combat each other. Um, part of that was inspired by the way Continuum does time combat, um, which involves a lot of shuffling back and forth into different times and places. So, so to summarise, um, the things that I've tried to keep true from the original Everway are four elements to describe the characters, the virtue, fault and fate, the karma, drama, fortune. Um, describing the home realm, I, I think that's important to make the traveller say, you know, they know where they come from. Um, but the magic system and the cards, I'm changing. So in summary, I think Grand Blow is going to be as much like Amber as it is Everway, where your characters can see the multiversal structure and, and have a sense of what's in shadow and what's real. Uh, Grand Blow is like one of these several un unfinished games I have on the go at once. And the others being Lag, which I've talked, I've talked about before, a game called Stormhack, uh, and a few fragments of things. Um, but talking like this actually spurs me on to get a working draft out there. So if and when that happens, it will go upon the Department V blog. Okay, that is enough for this episode. It's gone on for about an hour now. Um, so in the third and final part, I'm going to cover the conclusion of the book from chapters 43 to 62. And I'm going to talk about the most significant theme, that of gender identity and how it resonates with the divine. Until then, thank you very much for listening. Hey, thanks for listening, and if you're one of the nice people who rated me five stars on iTunes, that's great, thanks so much. It really makes a difference being encouraged like that. If you want to get in touch, we're on social media on Facebook and Twitter, at Victoplasm. Okay, thanks, bye. Bye.